We're going to be reading verses 1 to 9. This is God's word. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey, so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in the land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them to your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Amen. Uh, Folks, uh, don't put that uh, passage away. Keep it open there before you. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, that's mostly where our focus is going to fall today. Uh, You know when people talk about um, their dreams coming true? Well, I've I've had one of those moments in this service today. Uh, During the opening hymn or two, I was remembering dreams that I was dreaming 14 years ago when I first came here. I dreamt of a time when the building that was then empty would be full or somewhat fuller. I dreamt of a time when the spirit in the room felt like there was maybe a bit more joy and life than what we were experiencing back then. And these dreams have come true. To be with you, to hear you pouring out your joy and your love to God. Most of us weren't here 14 years ago. Dreams coming true. What, what do you love? I want you to take a moment to think about that. What is uh, most dear to you? What's your precious? It's just about the most important question I could ask as your pastor, somebody who's trying to uh, find life and trying to encourage you to find life too, to invite you on that journey. What do you most love? We need to talk about love. Uh, Wait a minute, you might say, well, we come here to church and we read the Bible and we think about what God's Word says because we want to learn to think differently. 
and to believe different things. Surely the most important question we ever need to be asking is that question. What, what do you think or, or what do you believe? Not what we love. Well, let's, let's test that idea in the laboratory of real life for a second. Do you ever find yourself uh, deciding, I'm going to do this? I've thought about it. I know it's good for me. I'm just going to do this. It's like New Year's resolutions, the classic version of this. You've ever uh, set yourself uh, a New Year's resolution. I'm going to have this new habit or I'm going to be on this diet. You make yourself a promise or a commitment. And I can't keep them. I believe they'll do me good. I've decided to do them. But I don't. I fail to do the thing that I think I should do. I fail to act on what I say that I believe. The truth is, you see, that human beings don't do things because they know they ought to. It's bad news, maybe. Makes things a wee bit trickier than just telling people do this and they do it. We don't do stuff because we think we ought to. What do we do? We do what we want to. We do the things that we love. It's not a new insight. Um, I haven't been able to trace it back any further than Augustine of Hippo, the 4th century uh, bishop of the church. We're shaped most by what we love most. More than by what we think or what we do. If that's true, then for a church like ours, where we talk a lot about discipleship and about wanting to follow Jesus Christ, that would be very important. Because... Trying to follow Jesus simply because we've been told it's a good idea or because the Bible says it isn't going to cut it. We're going to struggle. Even if we've come to believe the gospel, to believe that Jesus loved us and died for us and that somehow we should follow him, we're still leaving all of that in the realm of should. This is something that I should do. And it's going to create a pretty half-hearted or miserable bunch of people spending the rest of their lives living out of should. That's not what we want. We want to be lovers. A community of people who, when they're asked the question, what do you love, say, I love Jesus Christ. What do I want from my life? I want to be like him and please him in this world. There's a a modern author who's been helping people think about this in recent times, a guy called James K.A. Smith. And on the title of his recent book, he just spelt it out. He says, we are what we love. Whatever we love, whatever we set our hearts on, whatever we worship, that is what we become. 
So in our series, where we've heard so far Moses' invitation, he said, choose life, choose a better future, choose freedom, choose generosity. This morning, in these opening verses of chapter 6, we're going to see that he invites us to choose love. Verses 4 and 5 there, if you have a look at them. These are some of the most central words in the whole Bible. If you went to an Orthodox Jewish synagogue, even to this day, you would find that people there would repeat the words of these verses as an ongoing liturgy right now, what, three and a half thousand, possibly four thousand years since they were written. They still recite what they call the Shema. Uh, the Shema is, uh, gets its name from, usually if you give something a name in, in the Jewish culture of these days, the first word is what you, you name it after. So the, the Shema is a, uh, it's really the Hebrew word for hear. Hear, O Israel. It's, it's a common, that's a common phrase throughout the Old Testament, hear, O Israel. Um, for, for me it feels a bit like, um, you know when a parent is about to say something important to their kid for the benefit of their kid, you, you sort of headline it a wee bit just so that they can see it coming. Listen up. This is important. Um, hear, O Israel. Shema. Okay, Moses. So what's going to be important here? What do you, what do you want us to listen to? What's, what's, why do you need to get our attention? Look, look at verse 5. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is what Moses wants the people to take to heart. What does it mean? Actually, you could read different guys and it take you to different places. One person might say, well, it really focuses on the singularity of God. You know, there were a lot of uh, gods in, in those times who were sort of minor gods in a sort of a plurality. So the gods, the other nations would have had multiple gods. So is this Moses' way of, of stating that, no, there's, there's only the, the singleness of our God? Maybe that. Another view says that the phrase is drawing attention to God's integrity. He, he isn't caught in two minds. He doesn't have a spiritual schizophrenia. Um, a third emphasis falls on his incomparability. There, there's no one like him. I'm not sure that we have to decide which of those three um, Moses has in mind. Maybe he has all of them in mind. Chris Wright, the, the commentator, says the incontrovertible evidence was that Yahweh alone was God in covenant relationship with Israel. Yahweh had done what no other God had done or could do. Yahweh was one not many. I've never been a big one for going to live football matches. Maybe some of you do that. Um, and, and I don't know whether they still do this. But they used to sing from the terraces to celebrate certain players. There's only one Norman Whiteside. Only one Norm. You know the phrase? I don't want to trivialize the Shema in any way. But I think it has a bit of that spirit to us. There's only one Lord our God. Only one. 
And it carries this idea that he's out on his own, he's great, and we celebrate him. So I love it whenever our congregational singing here starts to veer off in the direction where it starts to sound a bit like the cop at Windsor Park. Where we're losing ourselves a wee bit. And this is what I was talking about earlier. This is what I've dreamed about for years. There's only one Jesus Christ. Only one. And we celebrate him. So Moses has gone to great lengths to get our attention. Gone to great lengths to allow our focus to fall on our wonderful, incomparable God. But what does he want? Why does he do that? What, what response is he looking for? Verse 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, And with all your strength. Love him. That's what we want. It's it's not an isolated thing. It's, It's always a dangerous thing to take a verse and make it feel like it's the only thing that's said. But the... The love, let's have a quick look. Verse, flick over to chapter 12, verse 10. Moses constantly calling the people to love God. And now, O Israel, sorry, 10, verse 12. Did I say 12, 10? I did. Yeah. 10, verse 12. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him. To serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Verse, chapter 11, verse 1. Love the Lord your God and keep his requirements. Verse 13. So if you faithfully obey the commands I'm giving you today to love the Lord your God. Verse 22 of the same chapter. If you carefully observe all these commands I'm giving you to follow to love the Lord your God. There's, there's a whole lot more. I'm just showing you that you go a few chapters and you're tripping over these invitations to love God. Very quickly, let's go back again to what I'm saying might be our theme verse. Chapter 30, verse 19. If there was one verse in Deuteronomy to make your memory verse, we should have done this actually. We've got out of the way of it. We need to get back to learning a memory verse for each Bible chunk we do. This, this would be the one I'd choose. Chapter 30, verse 19. Moses says, Choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life. Isn't that something? He is your life. Can't say any more than that. Choose God. That is to choose life. He is our life. If you jump back with me to chapter 6 again, uh, we're staying there really. Uh, Because of who God is, our love for him has to be total. Look again at verse 5. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. Because he's complete, because he's whole, we can't be half-hearted in our response to him. We're called to love him with all that we have. We could do a detailed analysis of what what the heart means in in Jewish culture. We're going to not not do a whole lot of that. What does Moses mean by the heart? Well, the heart meant something different for Moses than it did today. It's a bit less about sort of uh, an emotional response and something more like your your will and your intentions. The soul. Well, the soul means the the inner self, all your emotions, desires, and personal characteristics. It's a it's a bit like you know your your life force. So to love God with all of your heart and all of your soul means to to love Him with your whole self, your rational and mental capacities, but also your your emotional um, and, and moral choices, your desires, your feelings. As if that wasn't enough in the Shema, those two, heart and soul, Moses adds a third remarkable idea. The, the Hebrew word meod here is translated as strength, but it's, it's a bit, um, bit tricky to get a handle on. It's not actually a noun. The word's not normally used as a noun. It's normally used in a, as an adverb. It means to do something greatly or exceedingly. So probably the best way to understand this use of this word here is that it intensifies what's gone before it. It's bringing a a sort of a climax to the heart and soul idea. Love the Lord your God with the total commitment of your heart, with all of your soul, to total excess. Love God totally. Francis Chan has a a book called Crazy Love. Make him the love of your life. When I introduced Deuteronomy a few weeks ago, I was trying to make a case for why this book was important. And one of the things I said was that this book, in a way that's almost unique, was very important to Jesus. He seemed to quote it a lot, point people back to it a lot. So if we're disciples of Jesus, we're always interested to know, well, if it's important to Jesus, then it would be important to me. If I want to understand him and to get him, then I I want to understand this book uh, and get him. Turn with me for a second. Matthew chapter 22, page 991. What you have there is Jesus on our passage. So if you'd been there that day, you would have heard a decent sermon on Deuteronomy chapter 6. But you weren't. So let's keep going. Matthew 22. Jesus quotes there from the Shema. A Pharisee, an expert in the law, he's come to him. And he's asked him, he wants to test him actually, to trip him up if he can. So he asks him a question, teacher, what's the most important commandment in the law? What's the most important thing we need to know about God's law? What do we need to know 
if we want to walk in God's ways. That's easy, says Jesus. Take them straight to the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind. Love the Lord your God with a total commitment of your heart, with all of your soul. Love him with your mind. Love him to total excess. Love him. Actually, Jesus says, this is the key to discipleship. Loving me is the key to learning to be like me. Loving me is the way you learn to do the things that I say. Flick over for a second again. John chapter 14. Don't have a page number. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then chapter 14. Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room. And it's the night before he dies. And it's a, if you know this part, it's a very intimate conversation. We get more, more detail of a conversation of Jesus and his friends than, than we do anywhere else in the whole Bible. Chapter 14, look what he says in verse 15. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. Quite simple. You, you've maybe heard that verse, maybe know it. For all of my life, until very recently, I had understood that as a command. It's as though Jesus was saying, right, uh, let's get serious. You guys say that you love me, well then do what I tell you. I'd always understood this verse that way. It was kind of like a command to obey his commands. Now, I'm sure that Jesus wants us to obey his commands, and he would have no hesitation in telling us to keep his commands. But I don't think that's at the heart of this verse. I don't think that's primarily what he's talking about here. I think this verse is a statement of fact. If you love me, you'll naturally want to do the things that I do. If you love me, you'll find yourself wanting to walk in my ways. If you respect me, you'll want to follow my example. You'll want to be my disciple. If you admire me, then becoming like me will be all that you have ever dreamt of. If you love me, you'll do the things that I command. It's quite different, isn't it? In a passage from his masterful book, Renovation of the Heart, Dallas Willard talks about the mistake that we make when we try to be disciples of Jesus, to live the life that he calls us to without loving him. Still doing it all out of the I should place. He talks about some of the great New Testament passages, the wonderful life with God, the transformation that's described there into the likeness of Jesus. And he talks about this mistake that that people make. 
They assume that we're all supposed to do all of the glowing things mentioned in such passages without first loving God, with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. In fact, they think we must do them while our heart, soul, mind and strength are still strongly inclined in the opposite direction, against God. And of course their despair would be totally justified. What they're thinking would be completely impossible. To a person who's not inwardly transformed, evil and sin still look good. They're strongly attractive. To such people, the law is hateful because it denies them what they've set their hearts on. And everything must then be done to evade the law and to do what they want. The force of their whole being is set against Christ-likeness, even if they suffer from a bad conscience that tells them that they are wrong. Willard goes on, he, he talks about the very difficult place we find ourselves if we want to follow Jesus Christ when we don't love him. But he goes on and talks about a wonderful counterpoint. As Jesus begins to train them, all of this begins to reverse. The law begins to appear as a beautiful gift of God, as precious truth about what is really good and right. It becomes, in the language of the psalmist, sweeter than honey, freshly dripping from the honeycomb. At that point, it's sin that looks stupid, ridiculous, as well as repulsive. Resistance to sin is based upon the new and realistic vision of what is, not on the fear of punishment. The illusion that sin's really a good thing, arbitrarily prohibited by God, is dispelled. And we see with gratitude that his prohibitions are among his greatest kindnesses. Isn't that awesome? I'm almost finished, but let me share just a tiny bit more. Willard concludes uh, this chapter by talking about some characteristics, some marks that you see in the life of a person who's begun to love God. Who's learning to love God with their heart and their soul and their strength. Whenever they're found to be wrong, they never defend it. Not to themselves or others and less to God. They're thankful to be found out. They know what it is to be justified by grace and grace alone. And that understanding of grace is not just for their relationship with God, but also for their relationship with others. A second mark of the God lovers. They don't feel that they're missing out by not sinning. They're not disappointed. They don't feel deprived. 
They don't regard sin as something desirable. They know that sin is slop. Why stick your head or your body or your soul into that? A third mark of the God lovers, they're mainly governed by the pull of good. I love this. This gives me hope for a long Christian life. Their energy isn't, in, isn't invested in not doing what's wrong, but rather in doing what's good. I don't know. I, you look like you're still listening. Good. This is huge what we're talking about here. People who don't worry about doing wrong all the time, that's not our agenda anymore. We want to learn to live well. The final mark of the God lovers, life in God's will and God's ways becomes easy and joyful for them. Their walk with Christ is a burden only as wings are to a bird and engines are to an aeroplane. What do you love? Do you love Jesus? If you do, to the extent that you do, he will transform you and give you the kind of life that we're talking about here. And by the way, I see you lovers here today. In our church family, and in this gathering, I see you ones who've begun to see the beauty of Jesus to such an extent that you don't need to give your life to creating and curating images of your own beauty to put up on social media and so on. Your vision for beauty is much bigger than that. You've seen the beauty of Jesus. I've seen those of you who have come to see how smart Jesus is. That it's alright to read the the latest newspaper analysts, the most popular bloggers, the most uh, snappy comedies. It's alright to get all that, but you know who knows how to live life where wisdom lies. And you're going after Jesus Christ. I've seen the people here for whom Jesus Christ is becoming their hero. So it doesn't matter anymore what Kim Kardashian's up to, or Justin Bieber, or whoever the other celebrities are. We give our lives to getting to know Him, to accompanying Him. To becoming like him. You see, Augustine was right. And Moses before him was right. We are what we love. It's unavoidable. 
We become what we worship. So let's love him. Let's make Jesus Christ the love of our lives with the total commitment of our hearts, all of our souls. Let's love him with our mind, love him to total excess. Crazy love. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thought that life was all about giving up the things that we love to follow you. And now you're telling us that we are to be lovers. We're born to love. We were made to have passion and desire. And Lord, you ask us to find all that we need for life in your Son, Jesus Christ. To love him. Lord, I thank you for the the ways in which we're starting to see this. How your love, the love for Jesus has started to grow in us. Lord, I pray that if we ever had a reputation, this church family, this community of people, if we ever had a reputation for anything, it would be this. They love Jesus. And they're starting to look a whole lot like him. Lord, that's our prayer. We pray that you would, by your spirit, work to answer it in us. Amen.